Great job, guys. Thank you, Trevor, for leading us. And uh, if we've not met, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the roadies here at uh, Foothills Baptist Church. Um, good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, if, you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard this news, many of you, I think, have. It's trickled out. But Craig's mother passed away uh, just before the weekend there on Friday. So her name was Nancy Anderson, and they're going to be having services for her uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning at First Baptist Church of Rusk, Texas. Uh, Nancy and uh, her husband, Joe Ed, they are believers in Christ and faithful servants in the life of their local church. And, uh, and I think most of us agree that they raised a heck of a son and we're glad to know him and call him our friend. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so pray for them. Pray for them today that they... Uh, you know, I don't know. I would imagine they're in worship service or have been, or maybe they're in, uh, it's Texas, right? And so it's an hour, it's 1030. They might be getting ready to go into a worship service or maybe in Sunday school, but uh, pray for them. It's going to be emotional uh, coming to church this morning, all of those uh, family members who are nearby and friends in that church for many years. Lots of hugs, lots of tears, I'm sure. So pray for them today for sure, and then certainly tomorrow. Uh, I think Craig is planning to sing. He wants to sing, and uh, so that'll require an extra measure of grace for him to do that. But um, we're grateful, right, that we have gospel promises, that Nancy knew Jesus, right? And uh, in that moment, uh, the Bible tells us when we're absent from the body, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And uh, that's good news, right? So we're, we, we celebrate that when we come together on a Sunday morning here, so... Remember that. If you're new here, Craig Anderson is our worship pastor, and Trevor Bush has led us this last two weeks with, with him being gone, and so uh, thank you again, Trevor, for doing that, and uh, thank you guys. Hey, good morning. We're going to do a, a series of Christmas messages, and we're starting today, and so today, from now on, you can play Christmas music at home. It's authorized, and um, Christmas messages, yeah, Christmas is really proof, isn't it, that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Christmas is proof of that. And over the next four sermons that you're going to hear between now and Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and we're going to be considering some of the promises God made and kept concerning the coming of Jesus and the work and ministry of Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 7. It's on page 571 if you're using the Bible there in the pew rack. Isaiah chapter 7, page 571. Now, this passage is like our study in the book of Acts in that there are names and places and events. There are things happening. It's unlike the book of Acts because it's an Old Testament prophet. And Isaiah is making predictions and promises. God's doing that through the prophet. And so it's different. Uh, And let me tell you how particularly it's different. In the Old Testament prophets, often there was more than one horizon of fulfillment in view. The prophet themselves didn't always know that, or they weren't always completely aware of that, I don't think. But we have at least two in this text. Now, this text, um, and I'm not sure who the lame brain was that chose to preach through Isaiah, but it was somebody that had, you know, in charge of those kind of responsibilities. But uh, this text is, is, is wrestled with a lot by a lot of people. So I'm gonna come down decisively in a spot you may not agree that's okay. All right, we're going we're gonna to come to Jesus in the end. But I think that there are two horizons of fulfillment here. The first one is the immediate context. We're going to meet a man named Ahaz, who's the king of Judah. 
and we see the immediate fulfillment of what God is prophesying and promising in the birth of a son for his life and for his people in his day and time. But then we're also going to see the ultimate fulfillment, I believe, that second horizon in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew writes that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And in these two horizons, this is what we see. We see the first horizon in Ahaz's time where unbelief is exposed in the life of the king and his people. And in the New Testament, the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, of this sign in Jesus, we see faith being encouraged for Mary and Joseph and for you and me. All right? Are you with me so far? So let's look at the passage. All right? I'm going to read all of chapter 7. I don't mind doing that except for the fact that I know that I'm a little bit of a long preacher and I I get worried about that, but I think it's helpful for you to see this whole chapter. We're going to read it, and then when we get to chapter 8, we'll read a portion of that as well, all right? The big idea is this, that in the midst of our greatest crises, in the midst of your greatest crises, your greatest trouble, you can experience the saving presence of God in your life through faith. But unbelief leads to ruin. Now, that's the big idea that that we see in this, in this text. I want you to follow with me as I read. Isaiah chapter seven, verse one. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jothan, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees in the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel and its king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For the, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come about since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, 
and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Samaria. He will shave the head and the hair of the feet and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day... A man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for the land will be briars and thorns, and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, You will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and sheep tread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, uh, you can tell immediately, this is not the book of Acts. Poetry and imagery and all of that. I actually love the prophets. I don't understand them all that well, usually, and it takes a lot of digging for me, but I love to read them, and I love all of that language that's there. So here's the first horizon for us. It's the king of Ahaz, king over Judah, the southern kingdom, and here's the issue at at hand. He has unbelief in his heart, and God is exposing it with this promised sign. Now, it's 735 years or so before the birth of Jesus. That's where we are historically. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's got two enemies to the north, Syria and the kingdom of Israel. He and his people are terrified. He's referred to as the house of David. That's who rules there in Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Judah. He's feeling threatened and vulnerable, but God has something to say to him. So he sends Isaiah and his son. And where do they find Ahaz but outside of the walls of the city, working on his defenses, looking over the water supply for the city. He's preparing for a siege, and he's not thinking about the promises of God. He's trusting his own resources. And so when the king hears what the Lord has to say to him, it's meant to give him some encouragement, and there is some exhortation here. Uh, The encouragement ought to be apparent, really. Because Isaiah and his son come up to him and their names are significant. Isaiah's name really means the Lord saves or Jehovah is salvation. And his son's name means a remnant will return. And so that's a positive thing. Hopefully Ahaz will pick up on that, the very presence of these men. They're embodying this encouraging message. But God begins with an exhortation to the king in verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint. So there's a crisis facing Ahaz, and God is speaking to him about first impulses when you come face to face with a crisis in your life. And he's telling Ahaz not to just be stoic, not to have a stiff upper lip, and not to sit back and do nothing necessarily, but he is saying, I want you to trust me, Ahaz, and wait on me. See what I will do. Be careful. You know, God told Adam in the garden to keep the garden. It's the same word. It was a neat discovery for me this week. And so he's saying to Ahaz, I think, be careful with your life, Ahaz, with your heart and soul and mind. Be careful to keep it. First impulses, when you come into a crisis, how are you going to see this crisis and perceive it and measure it? Be careful about that. Be quiet. Just like that. Be quiet. Just rest. Be at peace. Don't fear. Don't reverence 
revere. Don't be in awe of that thing or those people that you perceive as a threat. And don't let your heart be faint. Don't, don't grow weak and faint because of unbelief. Don't throw in the towel here. When you face a crisis and a difficult time has come to your life, when there's a siege that's being laid to your life, what is your first impulse? Is it to, is it to fix the problem? Is it to address the issue? It probably is for many of us in the room. But God is speaking to Ahaz and he's exhorting him to another plan of action. When he says be careful and be quiet and don't be afraid and don't let your heart faint. It's difficult, isn't it? Because when a crisis hits your life, depending, and they come in degrees, right? But depending on what it is, the noise in your head can be deafening. And anxious thoughts can fill up your heart so much that it keeps you awake at night. It's hard when you face a crisis. But you can't concentrate sometimes, right? Because your, your brain is in a fog. You know what those are symptoms of? Now, I don't want to be brutal here, but I think they're symptoms of unbelief. Because the first impulse that God is saying here to Ahaz is to be careful and to be quiet and not to fear and don't faint. So he's trying to get hold of Ahaz early on in this crisis so that he sees it for what it is, that God is at work even in the midst of some of the most desperate, dark, difficult days in our lives. And that he hasn't forgotten us, and he certainly hasn't forgotten Ahaz. And that it is only through faith in God that will enable your heart to be at peace and to be quiet and to follow that. And so he's saying, I want you to meditate on this. And he goes on and he gives Ahaz this exhortation. So it's, it's kind of like, do you like Oreo cookies? This is like an Oreo cookie. There's an exhortation, that crunchy part right there at the beginning. Now he's going to give him that delicious middle part. And he's saying to him, basically, Ahaz, do not allow these two small men and their two small kingdoms to terrify you. What they have planned to come and replace you with someone else, it's not going to happen. In fact, I've set a drop-dead date for those two men and their kingdoms. They have an expiration date. They're not going to be around very long. There's smoke here, Ahaz, but there's no fire. These smoldering firebrands, these, these guys, they're going to come to nothing. That ought to be really encouraging to Ahaz. And so God exhorts him. Then he gives him that encouraging word that will help him to meditate on that, that will start to guide those first impulses so that he's not just flailing around in a crisis, but that he's beginning to trust God. And then God gives him another exhortation at the end in verse 9. He says, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. It's a play on words. It's difficult to communicate my best understanding would be to say this, if you don't live by faith in the midst of a crisis, then you can't really live. If you don't live by faith in the crisis, you can't really live. There's no real living for any of us as human beings, actually, in this life, in this world, apart from faith in God. Because God made us, he created us. And he's meant to be in relationship with us. We're meant to be in relationship to him. That's where we find real life. And that's what God has communicated to Ahaz. There's no real living Ahaz apart from trusting me in the midst of this. And so, if you're not firm in faith, Ahaz, if you're not all in, you're not going to be firm at all. Your life is, your life is going to fly apart if you don't trust me. It's a moment of decision for Ahaz, for all of his people as well. God is saying, this is your opportunity to trust me as God in a dark, desperate time in your life. 
God is exhorting him. Don't jump to your best first intuition. Trust in me first. Be firm in your faith. There are two questions that we ought to think about this morning. How is God calling you to trust him today? Because I can look across this congregation and I'll do the same thing in the second hour and I know what some of you are facing. How is God calling you to trust him today in that particular crisis, in this particular moment, at this season of Christmas? And how is God calling you not to trust in yourself in these days? Boy, the impulse is strong, isn't it? We sang the words earlier in that hymn, we're prone to wander and we feel it. How we need to learn to walk in faith. Living by faith in God is not easy to do. Uh, Some of you are older than me and you can tell us it takes a lifetime to learn to walk in faith before the Lord. In the midst of one crisis and one difficult circumstance after another, learning to trust in God, sometimes it feels like you're learning it all over again for the first time. And that's what's happening with Ahaz and it's what happens for us. Conversion to Christ happens in a moment when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus. In a moment we're justified, we're brought into the family of God but we spend the rest of our days in this life, on this earth, learning to walk by faith. And generally we learn those lessons in a crisis. That's what verse nine is about. In the crisis, in the siege, perhaps that you feel like you're facing today, how is God calling you to trust him? And how is he calling you not to trust in yourself? God is gracious to Ahaz in this text. He, he says to him, hey, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Here's a blank check, Ahaz. Make it as high as heaven, as, as deep as Sheol. It doesn't matter. Just ask me, and I will give you a token of my presence with you. Have you ever been in a crisis, and you're begging God for a sign that it's going to be okay? We all have been there, Right? And here the shoe is on the other foot. God is saying to Ahaz, Ahaz, ask me. I'm ready. I have the pen out and the checkbook. I'm ready to write the check. I'm ready to give you a sign. And what does Ahaz say? No thanks. No thanks. He pushes the check back across. No thanks, Lord. I don't, I don't want it. I won't test the Lord. It's, he's quoting a scripture. Deuteronomy says he's quoting scripture back to the prophet. Probably not a good idea. Ahaz looks really pious. When you read through that text, he seems very pious, but his his piety is is just a thin veneer that hides an unbelieving heart. That's what Ahaz really has. He's not believing God. He's not trusting God. He doesn't believe that God can be trusted. That is a human problem. It has existed from nearly the time of creation. It is the fundamental problem that faced Adam and Eve in the garden. Can God be trusted or not? They decided not and they ate and they were plunged into sin and the rest of us follow suit. And Ahaz is standing at the same crossroads. He's making other plans. Since he assumes God isn't good and can't be trusted, he's going to, he's going to make an alliance with the king of Syria, Assyria. And you don't see that clearly in this text but you see it in second kings chapter 16 i'd encourage you maybe this afternoon if you want to read it you can read that whole chapter but i want you to see this verse look at what happens look at what ahaz does so ahaz sent messengers to tiglath pileser king of assyria saying i am your servant and your son come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of syria and from the hand of the king of israel Would you listen to that statement? Look at it. Ahaz is declaring his faith, not in the Lord God, 
but in the king of Assyria. I am your servant. I am your son. Come up. Come up and rescue me. Now just think about that for a moment. I spent a lot of time meditating on that this week and being convicted of sin and my own posture in life. Because every time I am confronted with a temptation to sin, a temptation to find my significance, my identity, my purpose in life, my comfort, any satisfaction for my heart, when I am tempted to find my joy in anyone or anything other than Christ, it's as if I'm looking that temptation in the face with arms wide open saying, I'm your servant, I'm your son, come up and rescue me. I want to make an alliance with you because I believe that in you I can find satisfaction. I can find hope. I can find purpose. I can find comfort and joy. That's what Ahaz is doing, and that's what we do every time we're faced with a temptation to not believe that God is good and great and gracious and glorious. And that's what happens to Ahaz. He's faced with this crisis, and he begins to wring his hands, and he plunges into work and he's going to fix the issue and he's going to solve the problem and when your days are full of anxious thoughts and your nights are spent in wakefulness rather than rest and you're desperately looking for a solution among your friends or with your spouse or with the physicians or with your boss or whatever it is you're starting to be overwhelmed by unbelief you're making an alliance you're saying to one person or another or to that thing I'm your servant, I'm your son, come up and rescue me. There's no rescue in that. Listen, your spouse, your husband, your wife, they can't bear the pressure of rescuing you. They can't handle the weight of that. There's only one who can carry us. There's only one who can see us through. There's only one who can answer the needs of satisfaction in our hearts, and that's God himself. Ahaz is living in unbelief. He has declared his faith in the king of Assyria. But think about who Ahaz is. Twice in the text, it refers to Ahaz as the, as the house of David. He is a son of David. He is seated on the throne in Jerusalem. That throne is spoken about, and God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, David, your kingdom is going to be a forever kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And here's this man, Ahaz, seated on that throne, calling out to the Assyrian king, I'm your son, I'm your servant, come and rescue me. It's the entirely wrong posture. And it's wrong for you and me as children of a heavenly father who stands ready to hear our prayers and answer them, to open our arms and our mouths and declare our faith and our hope and our desires for anything or anyone else to come and rescue us. I don't know why all of the reasons at work in Ahaz's heart, why he wouldn't believe God, but whatever it was, Isaiah had had enough. He said, why are you wearying me? Why are you wearying your people? Why have you even wearied my God, there's a change. Isaiah speaks about your God. Your God is calling on you to ask for a sign, and now it's my God. There's, there's a shift, and we've seen it. And so he says God's going to give you a sign, whether you ask for one or not, and this is going to be the sign. There is going to be the imminent birth of a son, a child who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And while this child is still young, those two kings, those two nations that threaten you, that terrify you, they're going to be taken out of the way. I'm going to deal with them. And that's the good news. But this sign is going to show you something else, Ahaz, that, that unbelief will be discipline. That unbelief brings ruin to your life. 
And you see that in verse 17. The king of Assyria is going to come. Now, there's plenty of tension at work between the kingdom of Judah, where Ahaz was king, and the kingdom of Israel in the north. 200 years of civil war, essentially, and tension. God says, I'm going to handle that. But now that you've made an alliance with Assyria, the one that you thought was going to protect you and defend you and rescue you is now going to come and inflict pain and suffering on you. So it's a bit of an ambiguous sign. It's difficult as you work through it. God is with you to save you, Ahaz. But God is also going to be with you in judgment because of your unbelief. Ahaz makes a faithless decision. And his lack of faith has historic, uh, historic ramifications. For a hundred years, the kings that follow him, that sit on the throne in Jerusalem, will be vassals to the Assyrians until that kingdom fades and God raises up the Babylonians and they take the city and pull down the walls. I believe that the immediate horizon, the immediate fulfillment of this, of this text, this prophecy, happens when Isaiah takes his wife and they have a son together. You see it there in chapter eight. So just follow me. Then the Lord said to me, speaking to Isaiah, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. So make a big poster, Isaiah. Make a big sign and write this name on it. And I'll get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jepikariah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, he says, and she conceived and bore a son. This language ought to sound really familiar. From chapter 7, I, I, I went to the prophet. She conceived, she bore a son. The Lord said to me, call his name Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Why such an unusual name? The name, uh, the name signifies something about this, about this man and about what's about to happen. It means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. That's what the name means. It probably says that in the margin of your Bible. And look at what happens. Name him this, because before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, does that sound familiar? While he's still very young, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Syria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoiced over Raisin, the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria at all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels, go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching up even to the neck. In other words, when the Assyrians come, they're not going to just come and take Syria or Israel. They're coming for you. This is the sign. I will be with you for salvation it will feel as if you're about to drown, but it will only come up to your neck. But you will suffer, and it will be terrible. This, this name of this son appears twice here. It's desperate and it's dark, and yet there's parallelism all through this about this son of Isaiah's and this son that's promised in chapter 7 and verse 14. And you're thinking, well, uh, in chapter 7, verse 14, the son is called Emmanuel, and now we have this long name that's complicated and all that. There, there are two different names. I get that. But there's a difference between a name that's a signatory name, a signifying name, and a proper name. The angel told Mary and Joseph to call him Jesus. Matthew tells us that that name fulfills 
who he is and what he will do. He's Emmanuel, God with us, a, a sign name. And so this sign name that God is with them, Isaiah 7, but also this, this sign name of Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, that I'm going to be with you in judgment, these, these people are going to come and they're going to take. And so the name of Isaiah's son appears twice. It's a desperate thing. And you see the terrible effects of the Assyrians coming against God's people there at the end of chapter 7, verses 18 through through verse 25 and then in chapter 8 verses 7 and 8 it's just an extension of that he's talking about the same time in history God whistles and the nations do his will he whistles and the fly in Egypt and the bee in Assyria it's it's all this imagery and this language but he's saying I'm going to call these Nations are going to come against you. In that day, in that day, in that day, in that day, the consequences of your unbelief are going to come against you. There's not going to be any place to hide, the fly and the bee. They're going to take up residence in all of these unusual places. You might look to hide yourself and run for cover, but there won't be anywhere that you can go to escape what I'm about to do. They're going to live in poverty, eating curds and honey. They're going to be personally humiliated. They're going to be shaved from the tops of their heads to the bottoms of their feet. A personal humiliation. It's going to be like this flood that comes against them up to their necks. And, and everything that they've cultivated for generations, think about that. For generations, they cultivated vineyards. It was a beautiful, lush land. It's going to be turned into briars and thorns. It's going to be worthless. It's going to come to ruin. And yet, in chapter 8, you see that name, Emmanuel, again. Right? Look at what it says about that flood. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow, verse 8, and pass on, reaching up even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. It's like a, a prayer. He's crying out, oh, man, God be with us. And then the prophet speaks, and listen to this. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word. It will not stand, for God is with us. It's powerful. The first horizon of fulfillment is here in Ahaz's lifetime. It's the birth of this son imminently coming who will be a sign that the Lord is with you. He's with you to save you. How God wants to save but he is with you in judgment for your unbelief. In the midst of your greatest crises and trouble, dark times, desperate times, you can experience the saving presence of God, but it's through faith in him. Because unbelief brings ruin, and we see that. God wanted his people to experience his saving presence, but unbelief cuts us off from all of that. It brings ruin to our lives. It did for Ahaz and his people. It will for us. We really live. We really stand firm when we trust in God. Now, what if Ahaz had trusted in the Lord? I mean, what if he had had faith? What if he hadn't made that alliance with the Assyrians? What would have been the name of that sign child? It wouldn't have been Mahar Shalel Hashbaz. It wouldn't have been that. Maybe it would have been Yeshua, the Lord of salvation. Maybe it would have been. But that's how we get to the second horizon something that I'm not sure that Isaiah would have seen or understood, but Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points it out to us in his gospel. I want you to look at it with me. Matthew chapter 1, 
verses 20 to 23. This is a sign for Joseph and Mary, but it's also a sign for you and me. And rather than exposing unbelief, this sign is meant to encourage our faith. God with us. Look, look, at, this, uh, look at this passage. I believe it's on the screen for us as well, but we, we're familiar with this story. But as he, that is, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, you might want to circle that, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, how familiar. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here's Mary and Joseph. Both of them are descendants of the house of David. And the son that she will bear has every right to sit on the throne of David. And he will forever. She will bear a son. It's all very familiar. He's going to save his people, not so much from angry nations, hostile nations, but from their deepest, darkest foe, sin and death. That's why his name is Jesus, because the Lord saves, and he saves through him. And Matthew says this was all done in fulfillment of what God said through Isaiah to Ahaz 700 years prior that the promised son who would exemplify ultimately God with us is Jesus. What about that word virgin? Jesus is virgin born. I believe it. It's miraculous. When you go back to that passage in Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, most of your Bibles, the English translation, uses the word virgin. Uh, it's the word that means a young woman of marriageable age. And in the Hebrew mind, that would undoubtedly be a woman who is a virgin. But when Isaiah and the prophetess came together, she was no longer a virgin. She conceived a son and bore a son. The Greek translation of that word in Isaiah 7.14 in the Hebrew, the Greek translation of it is what Matthew calls out here. And it communicates something more, something deeper, that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit while she was still a virgin. She'd never known a man. Athanasius is one of the great leaders of the early church. You've probably not read anything by Athanasius recently, but he's got an entire, an entire uh, writing, study, if you will, called On the Incarnation. And I, I grabbed a snippet. He wrote this, He the Mighty One, prepared this body in the virgin and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known, there it is, God with us, and in which he dwelt, thus taking a body like our own because all of our bodies are liable to the corruption of death. He surrendered his body to death instead of all and he offered it to the Father. Jesus is born of a virgin apart from the agency of a human father so as not to be born with a sinful nature. He pleased God in every way in all of his life. Paul refers to him as the second Adam. He took on human flesh. And I love how Athanasius says this. He surrendered his body to death. He gave up his life to death. Even though he would have never died, he'd never committed sin, but voluntarily he laid down his life for us instead of us. That's how he puts it. So that we could have life 
through him. He offered it to the Father, and the Father accepted his sacrifice and raised Jesus from the dead three days later. You know, the glory of Christianity, the glory of Christmas for me is not that we somehow try to approach a God who sits at the top of a mountain and we look for this way and that to get to him. It's that the God of the universe has come down to us. He's reached down to us to rescue us, to deliver us, to make us his sons and his daughters by grace through faith. Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel, the with us God. That's who Jesus is. Almost always, as far as I can tell in the Bible, when you see that phrase, God with us, it's always hopeful. It's always about encouraging faith and salvation. In Exodus 3, God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, and he says, I will be with you. When Moses, when the mantle is handed over to Joshua, God speaks to Joshua, and he says, as I was with Moses, I will also be with you. When he called Jeremiah to be a prophet to his people, it would be very difficult. Jeremiah knew it. God told him. He was terrified, but God said to him, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you. And Remember what David said in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. Jesus is that one who's with us. You know, all of Matthew's gospel, all 28 chapters, are contained within this promise. Chapter 1, Jesus is born, Emmanuel, God with us. In the final chapter, Jesus speaks to us, his church, and he says, I want you to go and make disciples among all the nations. And don't be afraid, because I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that sign that God is with us in grace and mercy. That through faith in Jesus, we can experience the very saving presence of God in our lives today at this Christmas time. He came to save us, and he came to save us from our ultimate crisis and our ultimate need, sin and death. I know that many of you are already believers in Christ. You know Jesus. You came to conversion maybe years ago. And so for you today, perhaps the biggest application is the crisis that you're facing or the one that you will come to. Because if you're not in one, and if you're not having difficulty now, it's coming, right? Because we live in a broken world. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but we know that that's true. We've lived long enough. And so either you're in a crisis, you're facing kind of these siege-like situation, or you're going to come to one. And no matter how dark or how difficult it might be, no matter how long the siege might last, you can still experience the saving presence of God through faith in Christ. I want to suggest a couple of things to you. I want to suggest that you drink from God's supply and not your own. I was really taken by what the Lord said through Isaiah in chapter 8 of of his prophecy when he, he said that the Lord spoke to me again and because this people refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over resin, therefore I'm going to bring the waters to them. He, it's again, it's a, it's a caution that we not rely on ourselves, that we say no to our own best intuitions initially and allow our first impulse to be careful, to be quiet, to be at peace, and to trust in the Lord, to wait on him. Drink from God's supply, not your own. Because in Christ, who is the living water, that's when we be satisfied. And when we drink of him, we'll never thirst again. And here's the second one. Rehearse and believe the gospel. 
Rehearse and believe the gospel that Jesus has defeated your fiercest enemy, sin and death. That is the ultimate problem for you and me as human beings. And I know that some of you are facing terrible difficulties and desperate times. And what happens when your mom or your dad passes away? Even if you're a believer, it's hard. And there's grief and there's pain. But know this, that the same Jesus who defeated sin and death will bring you through all of those other hardships. There is nothing that you face in this world, no sickness, no loss, no, no weakness in your body or in your mind, no uncertainty about your future. None of those things are able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the reality of the God of heaven and earth being with us. He's a promise sign. He's all that you need today. He will be with you forever, and he will bring you safely home. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Isaiah. I thank you for inspiring his prophecy, for speaking to him. I'm grateful for obedience in his life so many centuries ago. And Father, thank you that we can look into your word and see and learn, hear your word and see images and pictures and how you're at work in the world. You're sovereign, you're great, you're full of glory. And at the same time, we know that you are a good God and full of grace for us. And so we thank you for that today. We thank you that at this Christmas time, we celebrate the one who came in fulfillment of a prophecy 700 years old who came and took on human flesh and laid down his life so that we might live, so that we might never walk one day in this life feeling that we are alone or on our own. Father, I pray that you would turn hearts to you this morning, that you would turn us to have faith in you, that the first impulse of our hearts as followers of Jesus would be to trust in you, not to work out the solution on our own, not to trust our own best intuitions initially, but to initially, immediately turn to you and trust in you, to be careful and quiet, to not fear or our hearts to faint, but to trust your promise that Jesus has come. He has defeated sin and death and he will take us through whatever difficulties and pains and struggles we experience in this life. We will never be separated from you or your love for us, your presence with us. We are grateful for that this morning. Comfort our hearts, challenge our hearts. We are grateful you're with us today, God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.